Wow. You know, for those of us who, it, it just, there's a, there's a line in the text we're going to study today, but the wisdom that comes from heaven. And let's give it up for Harrison showing us the wisdom that comes from heaven. Right? Yeah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for Harrison's story. And we here at Southbrook are a part of that. We're a part of that story. We hear a story like that and we go, oh my gosh, my life matters. I'm a part of that. The redemptive story of Christ. And uh, we thank you for the humility that comes from wisdom that he has shown us this morning. I mean, I for one, I thank you that I, I didn't ask to be born in the United States of America. I, I, didn't, I didn't ask to be a part of this community, this faith community. I kind of found myself, we, we go on and on of the things that we take for granted. Thank you for Harrison. In Jesus, we thank you. Amen. Amen. Yeah, that was awesome. Count me as one whose eyes are wet. Um, I was watching a documentary this morning before I came on the Ukrainian situation. We're now at about a year. And just the utter chaos that has happened in the Ukraine. But it, it brought it more personally to me because the, the individual, the soldier being interviewed, the Ukrainian soldier being interviewed was Sergei Starkovsky, whom for years I watched play tennis professionally. He beat Roger Federer one time. And now he's in a helmet and goggles and camouflage because he's at his post. And it was just a striking narrative. But one person, I just sat there going, man, how broken is our world? That one person, essentially, can wreak such havoc on a people, on a world. And it's things like this that I know is this is why I believe the way, the truth, and the life is Jesus. Because what he brings to humanity and through human beings is the same thing that would cure the situation in Ukraine. It's the same thing that would take care of the situation in the Middle East. And it's the same thing that would cure the ails of the marriage in the Midwest, in the United States. It's, it's his way of a wisdom and a humility that comes from heaven. And that's what we're going to look at today as we are in this series looking at his brother's words. James was at one time a skeptic of his brother, but he became a leader follower because of his brother's resurrection. And he wrote this book that we call the letter of James. And it is striking in its practicality. Now, I don't know about you, but there was a number of years ago, I had a dear, dear friend who spoke some truth into me 
that where he said, you know, you're not nearly as good at relationships as you think you are. And that was a def- that was a significant event for me because I think most of us think we're better at it than we are. Most of the time when relationships and our own Ukrainian-Russian conflict breaks out in our home, most of us think first, you know, it's him, it's her. What does a bride think when she's coming down the aisle? The three things. She thinks of the aisle, the altar, and the hymn. I'll alter him. I'll alter him. You know, I'll fix this because he, he's the problem. And, and I, I just remember that, that it was, it was a Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend type moment. Because like any kind of trusted friend giving you input, it hurt like heck, but he was right that I, I'm, I'm not in, indigenous to my personality for a lot of reasons. I'm not good at relationships. Uh, and so, for example, I, a few weeks ago was Valentine's Day. Everybody got that, right? And I remember a few years ago, I love this moment because a few years ago, Sherry, my wife, is very busy. She's very under demand, her job and everything. And it was Valentine's Day, and she had gotten the card for me, which we do on Valentine's Day. We trade cards. And when I opened the card, it was blank. She forgot to sign the card, the Valentine's card. And I said, honey? And I showed it to her. She, oh, my gosh, I bought the card direct from Hallmark, a blank card, an unsigned card. I'm so sorry. And, 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 and guys will get this. Don't be sorry, honey. You just lowered the bar. This is awesome. (laughs) I will not forget this Valentine's Day when you lowered the standard. Matter of fact, take that card and give it to me again next year if you want to. Don't sign it. And every guy understands that, don't we, guys? We understand that. Because most of us know, I mean, I feel pressure on holidays. I got to get this right because I'm not just, I'm not good at it naturally. When we come to this section in James where he deals with, we're entering into, next week we'll talk about out and out conflict, but he deals with this relational reality of humanity that is diseased. All of us share the same struggle that Vladimir Putin struggles with, and that is seeing the world only through our eyes. Self-centeredness. Donald Miller said, there is no drug so powerful as the drug of self. There is no rut in the mind so deep as the one that says, I am the world, the world belongs to me. All people are characters in my play. There is no addiction so powerful as self-addiction. And it's the most deceiving of addictions because you can have it and totally be oblivious to having it. Writer Stephen Robinson said, I don't know about you, but give me the choice and I will usually choose the largest cookie in the batch, two slices of bread from the middle of the loaf instead of the first and slightly stale one, the car with gas in it, the glass of Coke from the new bottle, whether the one poured from the one sitting open all evening, the slice of pizza with the most pepperoni on it, the large piece of cheesecake if only two are left. If there's more, I'll slice a little off another. The healthiest looking cherry tomatoes from my salad, the second slice of bologna rather than the slightly slime 
slimy one on the top, the white meat, to be recognized and praised rather than to have my good deeds go unnoticed. Given my track record for choices and what they say about me, I think I can safely predict whom I would have shouted for when Barabbas and Jesus were put up for grabs, which has all to do with why I need a savior. Given Jesus' track record, he would have chosen Barabbas or me, which has everything to do with why he is the savior. And it, he's spot on that most of us grew up never having had this default human inclination discipled out of us. The world is a play about me. The world is a play and I am the star participant. And most of us, that natural self-bentness, which is actually the default of the human status. That's, the, that's our nature. It's a preservation instinct. It's why the scriptures, especially Proverbs, talk so much about discipling that out of a child because you don't have a person who can function in society as long as they see that the world is all about me. It's all about me. Look at how James put it. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. For if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. There is a way of the world that our world applauds that is this wisdom that rewards selfish ambition. But the problem with that is it just doesn't work in any relationship. It just doesn't work. Matter of fact, just really quick, walking you through this, James really gives us two paths. That's really what this section is about. There's the hellish path. And the hellish path, he says, begins with bitter envy. And this is, the bitter envy is the state of, I want that. I want what she has. I want what he has. And it is the state of a person with their soul is like this empty cup. I need my cup filled. I need my cup filled. And so the world is all about a place where they're going to get their cup filled. Their self-worth is going to get affirmed. Their status is going to get validated. And he said, when you have that as the modus operandi, what you have is, is it produces an inclination to see everything through what can I get out of it. That then produces disorder. Anybody ever been on a team where everybody was out for themselves? <laughs> I mean, just disorder. There's no role definition. There's, there's, there's nothing that allows the parts to fit together. And he says, where you have that, you have every evil practice. I mean, it's just Katie bar the door. All hell can break loose on this hellish path. You have Ukraine. You have Ukraine when a Russian oligarch says, I want what I want. And who cares what Ukraine thinks? But then he says this, what he'll say is there's this heavenly path. And it can be yours through Christ. It can be yours. You may not have grown up in this path. The default destination pathway in your brain is actually the hellish path, but you can be a new creation. That's the promise of the gospel is your, your brain, your soul can get rewired. And this heavenly path, it starts with wisdom, he says. Now we take, kind of take this word for granted. We think of someone who just espouses these wise 
epithets and little sayings. Wisdom is really just the ability to view life on earth from God's perspective. That's what it is. It's the ability. It's as if, imagine you go to heaven and you get to spend three weeks in heaven and you come back to earth and all of a sudden that fourth grade basketball game is not the most important thing that's going to happen in Centerville this Sunday. Because all of a sudden you see life from a perspective of wisdom. That's why I tell people, I'm a, uh, we just had our fourth and fifth granddaughters in the last month. So come on, give it up for the, Yeah. And I tell people this, I tell people this, oh my gosh, the one thing about being a grandparent is if we would parent the way we grandparent, we'd be such better parents. And I'm not exaggerating one bit. Why? It's wisdom. You just gain wisdom. You just begin to see life from, from eternity backwards. And he says, where, what does that produce? You know what that produces? It produces, and we're going to define this, humility. Oh, okay. Wisdom, the byproduct of wisdom is always a humility. We'll define that. And humility produces inner peace. Inner peace produces relational peace. And so it starts with what Jesus promised. It starts with the ability to start seeing life from God's perspective. And that produces humility. That produces inner peace. That produces relational peace. The path is not complicated. The path of heaven just isn't earthly. The default destination of the human condition is depravity. It is hellish. If you just let a child, if you let a little two-year-old go, this is, the, this is the, the problem with humanism. Humanism says we were a blob and it's from zoo to you, from goo to you by way of the zoo, and now we're getting better. Yeah, anybody ever tried that out with their two-year-old? We're just going to let her do what she wants to do. How does that work? It's, it's disorder in every evil practice is what happens. That's why we have to have this trained out of us. And Jesus provides this way. And this way is, is a way that's not natural to the human condition. It needs a new creation. The New Testament word for this is we need the second Adam, his name is Jesus, to give us the DNA of the second Adam, a new creation that's walking the earth now. And so this, you see this all the time. You see this in relationship. The question is, are we, and we could look at every marriage, every friendship, every small group, every office, every team. And the fundamental question of whether that's going to operate well is this question. Are we still at selfish ambition? Uh, the psychological term for that, are we trying to self-actualize or have we moved on to mutual humility? Have we moved on to that? That's the question. Verse 16, he says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Part of the problem with your success is the same thing that made you successful in business will not make you successful at home. It won't. It'll wreck your home. One time, Michael Jordan famously said, and he's spot on. He famously said when somebody accused him, of being selfish, he said, well, you know what? I know, I know, I know there is no I in team, but there is in win. And here's the truth, is if Michael Jordan doesn't average 35 points a game, the Chicago Bulls do not win six championships. They don't, because you know what? That was his role that he needed to play. But that same ambition does not work in a home. It doesn't work in, there literally has to be a different modus operandi 
for that same life to work in the context of relationships. And this is true of you and me. Years ago, I read a, a, a just such a fundamentally effective book by John O'Neill called The Paradox of Success. Excuse me, success. And he simply raised the question, does anybody here realize that achievement through selfish ambition has a destructively dark side? What James is calling the wisdom that comes from the earth. He said that success can be defined in many ways, but in our society, success has to do with wealth, power, privilege, freedom from care, personal autonomy. And he developed what I think are really eight fundamental questions to see if you're still operating fueled by the wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and, and effectively demonic. It's of the devil. Number one, is your calendar saturated with important dates? In other words, do you find less and less time for family and friends? Do you spend a little time alone? In fact, avoid it because you don't, you don't get any rewards for being in solitude. Have you given up some small ritual that refreshes you in your relationships, like a walk or a quiet cup of coffee on the porch? There's too much to be achieved to be doing that. Number two, is competition your primary mode of interacting with others? Is winning central to your sense of self-worth? Are your competitors' losses even more satisfying than your own gains? When your team accomplishes something, do you fret about your share not being large enough? Or your credit too small? Is your world divided into winners and losers? Simple way you look at the world. Number three, have the trappings and symbols of power become crucial to your self-definition? Do you feel upset if people get your title wrong or fail to recognize you? Are you buying things to fit or bolster your image? Are your trophies shielding feelings of inadequacy? Number four, do you overextend or abuse your natural talents? For example, if you're good at relating to people and getting them to confide in you, do you wind up misusing their trust? Or do you use your skill with numbers, words, memory, or whatever to show off, dominate, humiliate others? Do you neglect developing your latent gifts because you can always count on your old tricks? Number five, when you find yourself stuck, unable to resolve difficulties in your career or relationships, do you invent all sorts of external reasons to explain your problem? Bad luck, the economy, other people's weaknesses or ineptitude. Do you invariably find your family, associates, or employees flawed and unreliable? Number six, when you get bad news or criticism, do you brood on it or take more than just your share of blame for it? Do you dwell on critical remarks or slights, imagining what you could have done to avoid them? Do you overlook and downplay compliments or feel unworthy of them? Number seven, has the need for control and the exercise of power become a desperate and depleting game? Do small irritants and vexing details bother you way out of proportion? Are you less tolerant of delays, changes in schedules, slow service? Number eight, are you sometimes flooded with negative emotions that surprise you by their intensity, cripple your effectiveness, and alienate those around you? Does anger boil into rage over trivial events like a car cutting you off or someone pushing ahead of you in line? He said, if that's the case, with three or four of those that you go, oh no, that's me, then you're losing that war. Right now, you're losing that battle. 
which means you're probably not as good as relationships as what you think. <laughs> I saw this this week. A guy named Shel Silverstein wrote, I didn't know this, The Prayer of the Selfish Child. Anybody ever heard this? Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I, def- if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my toys to break so none of the other kids can use them. When I read that this week, I thought, boy, I identify with that way too much. This is not good. And maybe there are three or four of those that you go, oh. And we're all hybrids. We're all in transition to being fueled from self-actualization to Jesus' actualization. But if three or four of those, you know, that's me, then you need, you need this lesson. James says, wisdom then brings about humility. Ah, that's the key. That's the turning point in every relationship. Is there mutual humility? There's so many definitions of humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking yourself less. That is so true, but it bears repeating because it's so accurate. But in the context of relationship, here's a definition that I want us to take home today. Humility is the awareness we're all equal. There's no one up or one down. So we often think of humility, humility is, is there's no one up. Like I'm, I'm, you know, you know what humility also is? There's no one down. I'm not below either. Humility, the word humility comes from the Greek word, uh, the Latin word humus, which means of the earth, that we're all of the earth. All of us are made of dust. From dust we came to dust we shall return, correct? We're all dust bunnies. That's all we are is dust bunnies. And No one above, no one below. And you say, what's the significance of that? Well, it has huge implications on every friendship, every marriage, every group, every single human interaction. Because once that is not an idealized value, but a realized value, you will see two people who are eager to outserve each other. Not out of duty or obligation, but because it flows from who they are. James says in verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. So this is what this humility looks like. It's pure. There's a holiness to it. Motives aren't dark and shadowy. Then peace loving. I'm not trying, if I have humility, I'm not trying to get my way all the time. It doesn't have to be my way. Considerate. I love that word because it's the word that implies If you were a judge and you knew the letter of the law and what it says, you would apply considerate wisdom to that situation. And so you do that in relationships. Submissive. The reason that I can be in a mutually submissive relationship is I'm submissive to one above me. Full of mercy. Mercy is withholding punishment that is due. I withhold that. And good fruit, impartial, which means I see below the surface of human, typical human judgments of status and clothing and income. I see below that. And then sincere, which literally means without wax. I don't fill in the cracks and cover them over. What you see is what you get. And then he says this, look at this. This is what leads into next week. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. You got married, you entered into friendship, that was your hope. You may have not said it, that, am I right or am I right? That was your hope. Your hope is that you would have these two mutually inner peace people 
that are now sowing, planting, fertilizing, watering righteousness to grow. And it's a wonderful thing when it happens. But it has to start with the wisdom that produces humility. And how do we get there? How do we get there? Because as long as you have bitter envy, as long as you're really walking around life going, my wife needs to fill my cup because my dad and mom did not appreciate me and now I've married someone that I, she needs to affirm me. You're not saying that, but you're saying that. And as long as that's there, by the way, your wife is not Jesus. She can't be Jesus. And as long as you're saying that, there's going to be disorder in every evil practice. This is going to break down eventually. So James says, we got to ask for this wisdom that produces humility. Humility that is out of, it is out of security. I love what Donald Miller said. He goes, he said, if you get this one truth, it'll change every relationship you have. Every one of your relationships will change with this one truth. Every marriage, every friendship, every team will improve. With the, are you ready for this? Here it is. Here is the one truth that all of us need to hear and it'll change the way we relate. Other people exist. He said, how would our relationships change if we related to every person this way? You are more important than me. You say, yeah, but you don't know how much I've been neglected. You have no idea. You wouldn't say that if you knew how much I've been abused and traumatized. I know. But you didn't used to have the rock. Now you have a rock. Now you have a foundation that's of eternal substance. His name is Jesus. Now it's different. Now you're not living your life to be self-actualized. Now you're not living your life going around expecting other people to fill your cup. You know why? Because the Lord is your shepherd and your cup runs over. Your cup runs over now. This is a different deal. You, you have a humility that comes from not, oh, I'm lowly, I, I'm not much. No, no, no. Your humility comes from, I am, a, I am a divine image bearer. I'm a beloved child of the most high God with supreme value and worth today, just as you are. No one up, no one down. We're all humus. We're all of the earth. And by the way, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all in need of a savior. Not a single one of us can gain footing, can gain the high ground on another. And when you get two people in a relationship that both have that, oh my gosh, peacemakers who sow in peace will raise, raise a harvest of righteousness. You ever notice people who have this genuine humility, which is an interesting thing, because if you say, yeah, I think my strength is humility, you don't have it. You probably don't have it. You probably lost it right there. One of the funniest verses in the Bible is at the end towards Deuteronomy, written by Moses, there's a statement, and Moses was the most humble man in all the earth, for there was not a more humble man than Moses, and he wrote it. So I don't know. I don't know how humble, I don't know how humble he was. How humble would you be if you brought two tablets down from a mountain that affected humanity forever? I don't know. But one of the things you'll see is you'll, you'll see a couple of things. I, you'll see them that they live with this, I've done some things, but it's all relative. I just, I can't stand the braggadocio of sports. Like, I just can't stand trash talking and all that. It just, it just, you know, maybe because I wasn't good at it. I don't know, maybe that's why. But this, the, the, oh man, this idea that, boy, what I've done is pretty impressive. There's an old story about when Dwight D. Eisenhower was the, the commander-in-chief of the Allied forces during World War II, he eventually become president. His mother was on a train sitting beside another woman, 
And this other mother, who for a half an hour, they didn't know each other, but this, this mom just talked for a half an hour about her son, who was a corporal in the army, and just bragged and bragged and bragged about how great her son was, who was a corporal in the army. Finally, when she was done talking about herself and her own son, she, she looked over at Mrs. Eisenhower, and she said, do you have a son? And Mrs. Eisenhower said, yeah, I do. And she said, oh, yeah, what does he do? And Mrs. Eisenhower said, he's in the army, too. He's in the army, too. No matter what you've achieved, there's always someone that's, oh, man. <laughs> okay, my, my accomplishments, if that's the basis of my humility, ooh, that's not humility, that's humiliation. A lot of times you'll hear people with genuine humility say, I've done some things, but not alone. This, was the, this is the other thing that you'll see with people have genuine humility. It's never I. It's we. I mentioned Michael Jordan and Steve Kerr, who played with him, used to joke about the fact that one night he and Michael Jordan combined for 71 points. Michael Jordan scored 69 of them. (laughs) And so often we brag about the things we've done when in reality we go through life acting like we hit a triple we were born on third base. That's the truth. Colin Powell famously kept a picture of a turtle sitting on top of a fence post on his, in his office to remind himself that turtle didn't get there alone. I don't care what you've accomplished. You didn't get there by yourself. There's an old story Paul Harvey used to tell about a, a husband and wife who stopped to get gasoline at a convenience store, and the husband was the Fortune 500 CEO. And he goes in to pay, and she's out there waiting, and she's talking to a gentleman that it's clear they know each other. And when the Fortune 500 CEO comes back out to the car, gets in the car, he says, hey, did you know him? She said, yeah, I did. She goes, come to find out. He's a guy that we, I went to high school together. Not only that, we dated for quite a while in high school. And there was silence in the car for a little bit, and they're driving along. And the CEO says, well, I bet I know what you're thinking. I bet you're thinking you're glad you married me, a Fortune 500 CEO, and not him working at a convenience store. She said, no, I'm thinking that if I'd have married him, he'd be working at a convenience store. Uh, You'd be working at a convenience store. He'd be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. (laughs) And the point of that story, women got a lot more laughter out of that than the guys did. (laughs) The point of that is that it's so easy to think what I've done And people with true humility know, oh my, no, no, no. Um, I probably get a lot more credit, most of people like that will say, than I deserve. The other thing, too, is that just remember your mistakes. How many of you, once you start feeling full of yourself, all you have to do is remember, I've done some things, but I've made a lot of mistakes. And nothing will humble you, nothing will keep you humus than the awareness of the stupid things you've done that a lot of us, I love that scene in Spaceballs when Dark Helmet, played by Mick, Mick Moranis, gets plowed into the front of the spacecraft. Anybody, nobody else here has watched the, the, one of the best comedies of all time, Spaceballs, and he gets plowed into the front of the spacecraft and they're watching it on video, they're replaying it on video, just don't ever play that again. And most of us have those mistakes where we say, don't ever play that again. We say that, but in reality, it's good for us, isn't it? I've told the church before about one time 
when I was just in the ministry, I forgot to turn the baptistry off and I flooded the whole church. Then I did it again a year later. <laughs> Pastor Emeritus at age 24. That's, that was me. And when we remember those things we've done that we say, don't ever play that again, it, it reminds us we're of the earth. Jesus said this. He said, whoever humbles himself will be exalted, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled. I think if you try to do that, you say, I'm going to leave here today, I'm going to be humble. But you're really not. Trust me as one who's, I was raised in a family of fake humility. You'll just be prideful, but you're covering it with veneer of religiosity. To live this out, takes a relationship with the one who, because he knew he was come from the Father and was going back to the Father, got up from the evening meal, took a towel, wrapped it around his waist, took a basin, and began to wash his disciples' feet. That you cannot try hard to be humble. It's just fake. What you can do is live your life in relationship with the one who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being found in human likeness. And he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You live with that, Jesus. And you won't have to fake it. There's a great story about Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen probably has impacted your life and you didn't know it. If you've ever heard the phrase, the wounded healer, that actually started with Henry Now in a book he wrote about the greatest healers are, are, are people who are aware of their own woundedness. And so he's literally affected millions of lives around the globe. His name's actually Henri Nouwen. His, he's, he's Scandinavian, but I'm a redneck from Licking County, so he's Henry to me. And Henry Nouwen was a priest and a teacher and a writer he, he was so renowned when he was alive that he moved into circles of Harvard and Yale and Cambridge and Notre Dame. But he was a simple man, and he didn't believe that those particular esteemed contexts brought out the heavenly wisdom in him that produces humility. He, he began to realize it's just making me more prideful. It's making me think I'm something that I'm really not. So this famous writer, this famous wounded healer, spent the last 10 years of his life caring for physically and mentally challenged residents of a small community called Learche. And it was there that he made friends with a resident named Trevor who had many mental and emotional challenges. And he said one time, they said one time when Trevor was sent to a hospital to get evaluation, Henry called to arrange a visit with him at the hospital, his friend Trevor. When the authorities found out that the famous Henry Nowen was coming, they asked him if he would meet with some doctors and chaplains and clergy. And he agreed, but when he arrived, there was a, a lovely luncheon that had been set up, laid out in the golden room. It was fine, but Trevor was not there which was not fine. Where's Trevor, Henry asked. He cannot come to the lunch, they told him. Patients and staff are not allowed to have lunch together, and no patient has ever had lunch in the golden room. 
But the whole purpose of my visit was to have lunch with Trevor. Henry said, if Trevor is not allowed to attend the lunch, then I will not attend the lunch either. Trevor was invited to the lunch. The golden room was filled with people who were excited that the great Henry Nowen was in their midst. Some angled to be close to him. They thought of how wonderful it would be to tell their friends, as I was saying to Henry Nowen the other day, having lunch. Some pretended to have read books they had not read and no ideas they did not know. Others were upset that the rules separating patients had been broken. Trevor, oblivious to all this, sat next to Henry, who was engaged with con in conversation with the person on his other side. Consequently, Henry didn't notice that Trevor rose to his feet. A toast, Trevor said. I will now offer a toast. And the room grew quiet. What's he going to do? Everyone wondered. And Trevor began to sing. If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. If you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. If you're happy and you know it, if you're happy and you know it, if you're happy and you know it, raise your glass. And at first, people weren't sure how to respond, just like you right now. <laughs> but Trevor was beaming. His face and voice told everyone how glad and proud he was to be there with his friend Henry. And somehow Trevor, in his brokenness and joy, the writer said, gave a gift no one else in the room could give. Because in a matter of moments, people began to sing. Awkwardly at first, but then with more enthusiasm until doctors and nurses and priests and PhDs were almost shouting, if you're happy and you know it. All under the direction of Trevor. No one was preening anymore. No one was worried about the rules. No one tried to separate the PhDs from the ADDs. For a few moments, a room full of people experienced a little bit of heaven because a wounded healer named Henry Nowen lived among the challenged and loved a challenged man named Trevor who was happy and he knew it. Because why? Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness can I get an amen? That's what you want. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way to that. Starting with you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for people like Trevor and Henry Nowen. I thank you for people like Harrison teach me. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that he got up from that table. And he took my cross. And his way is the way that will heal this broken world. His way the way of the cross, which literally is excruciating, ex out of the cross. His way is the way that will heal every broken marriage, every broken friendship. The way is the way of the wounded healer. And we can't try this 
It doesn't work. We end up doing it out of our own insufficiency. All we can do is all that we need. And that is to say, Jesus, I walk with you today. I walk with you. You dine with me. You said, whoever, whoever would open the door for me, they will come, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. That, that we sit down at a meal with someone far more greater than Henry Nowen. We sit down with the creator and the redeemer of the universe. When we walk with the wounded healer, we become wounded healers. We become peacemakers who sow in peace and we raise harvests of righteousness. May that happen. Jesus for you, always. And everyone said, Amen. See you next week, everybody.